Carbon capture and storage sounds like a dream solution to climate change. You pull carbon out of the air, compact it, and store it away where it won't contribute to the greenhouse gases that are causing our planet to warm. However, after 50 years of research and development, carbon capture still isn't cost-effective, easily done, or showing any real signs of emerging as a viable solution in the long term. Plus, environmentalists remind us that carbon capture is a band-aid to the problem of climate change, not actually a solution that gets us to reduce emissions. Finally, it turns out that where we put that stored carbon is important. Putting it in the wrong place might just cause a whole range of environmental and human consequences. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvia-Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Before we jump into our conversation, I want to remind you that KPFT Houston is currently in our February Fund Drive. As public radio, KPFT Houston can only exist with your support. Over 90% of our funding comes from listeners like you. If you're enjoying Gulf Streams and want to support our work, please call 713-526-KPFT and pledge a donation. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer to support our work. In the coming weeks, Gulf Streams will feature conversations with experts on plastic waste, carbon capture and storage, meat production, and the economics of climate change. If you want to become a station sustainer, ask about our memory bricks permanent inscribed tributes to your generosity here at the studio. And during our entire pledge drive, every new sustainer pledge at any amount will automatically result in an additional donation of $50, thanks to a generous matching gift pledge. Call 713-526-KPFT to learn about all the unique pledge drive offerings going on this month. We're delighted to bring you important conversations about environmental and climate issues here in Houston and beyond on Gulf Streams and can only do so with your support. So please call 713-526-KPFT, make a one-time or sustainer donation, mention Gulf Streams, and help us keep ad-free public radio on the air here in Houston. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Paige Powell of Commission Shift and Becky Smith of Clean Water Action. Paige Powell. Becky Smith, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Um, so just to start off, can you introduce yourselves and your organizations to us so we know who you are and what, you're, what you've been working on? Uh, sure, yeah. So I work for Commission Shift. Uh, I'm a policy manager there. And Commission Shift is a statewide nonprofit organization working to build public support to hold the Railroad Commission of Texas, the state's oil and gas agency, accountable to its mission in a shifting energy landscape. And so we're trying to clean up oil and gas and improve transparency and protect communities and all the good things. Um, so really happy to be here today. Um, and this is Becky. I am with Clean Water Action. Um, I'm our Texas director. It's a multi-state national organization of about 150 folks. It's a grassroots group. And so since our founding in 1972, um, which was to help pass the original Clean Water Act, we've been able to build uh, community engagement, community campaigns, and really use the strength of grassroots organizing to push for policy that protects water, public health, natural environment. 
So I know we're going to get to the water element of this in a minute, but I want to I want to start at the beginning if we can a little bit and just open with what is carbon capture? What is this thing we're talking about? Folks may have heard of it. Uh, I have a hunch the acronym CCS will pop up at some point. Um, and so just what is that acronym? carbon capture and storage? What does that mean? And, and we'll try to we'll try to stay at the carbon capture side rather than go too deep in the weeds on the many different technical terms around this because it is very technically complex. Yeah, that's one of the goals uh, is to not use too many acronyms today. So y'all remind me if I get if I get too far in the weeds. Can I um, can I tell you what we call that at my office? Tell me. Uh, we call that acronymonious. <laughs> so we we try to avoid that. Love it. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you for that. Uh, so carbon capture is uh, essentially a technological solution to reduce. Um, atmospheric carbon in an effort to solve the climate crisis, right? We know that CO2 in the atmosphere um, creates warming and, uh, you know, has kind of put us in this problem where we have more extreme heat and worse storms and more frequent hurricanes and all the other um, not-so-fun side effects of the climate change. Um, so carbon capture is essentially like a techno solution of, you know, rather than having to stop burning fossil fuels will just like capture the emissions, right? And hopefully that would solve it. So you could like capture carbon at a stack, like at a site of a refinery or something like that. Or you can capture it out of the air, directly suck it out like a vacuum. And so that's called direct capture or um, uh, point source capture, right? Direct air capture. And, uh, and then the idea is to like transport that CO2 that's been captured and compress it, like transport it in pipelines and stick it into the ground, like put it into big caverns or depleted oil wells or aquifers or whatever different geologic formations and presumably keep it there forever and ever so that you know, we have less carbon in the atmosphere and we can like save ourselves. So this is the, the storage of the, of the carbon right, capture. Right, the carbon capture, <laughs> transport and storage. They don't usually, you talk about the tea, mm. but the transport is pretty big part of it too. Yeah, I don't hear much about yeah. that. Yeah. What the, the transport well, is. Well, you know, because it has to be transported in pipelines. So there's an entire like infrastructure system that needs to be built into that, right? And like, you know, traveling, if we're going to capture it here, we need to transport it depending on where the storage location is really, really far away. And so all of that length is just, I mean, I, I talk a lot about the risks of CCS and carbon capture, transport and storage, um, because when you travel that much land and you cross by and pass by that many communities, you know, all of those folks are at risk of, you know, some catastrophic incident. So, And so, I mean, I think that's, you know, we hear carbon capture and storage and the idea we're going to collect all this carbon and put it away sounds very exciting like this is a you know a great potential way to mitigate climate change damage i, I both want to know more about those risks in a minute but also how effective is this technology why aren't we using it everywhere already yeah so um now that it's coming kind of into fashion and even oil and gas companies are talking about it because they're the ones who would presumably mm -hmm. do this carbon management um, the line is like, we've been doing it for 50 years already in enhanced oil recovery. We already know what we're doing. And that's true. They have been um, using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery um, for 50 years. But in that time, it what has is enhanced oil recovery. Sorry, let's let's back you inject something into a well, like an oil and gas well that's not really producing anymore. So you inject something like water or CO2 and to like get more product out, get more hydrocarbons out. So, okay, we've, been so we've introduced a new term with, with injection wells here. Again, sorry, this is the, the complex nature of this. 
But I, I, I just want to pause and say I think most people are familiar with one form of injection wells and, and fracking. That's probably the term they've heard, right? All right, so we're we're thinking of, you know, some of this carbon being used for fracking for purposes similar to that. So then, okay, keep going. <laughs> this, how, how do we move that carbon, I think, is where you were going. Right. So, you know, um, it's got to be compressed and um, under really, really high pressure and really mm-hmm. specific temperature into what's called like a supercritical state. And so it almost becomes a liquid Hmm. and then that liquid co2 can be piped like across the state and injected underground all right i in in that i'm starting to get (laughs) why there might be some nervousness around this process both because there's a number of really complex steps you've laid out but also the fact that you know we now have pipelines involved which potentially have leakages we have different methods of moving it around um I'm curious because actually what I hear from from oil and gas folks <laughs> is that the efficacy of this is not great so far, um, is that this is not probably the most viable solution to actually what our problems with climate change are. And I'm, I'm wondering if you want to say more about that. Yeah, that I think was where we were getting um, that they've been doing it for 50 years for EOR. And the technology hasn't gotten any cheaper. It hasn't gotten any more better, more effective. The capture rates still aren't meeting projected rate. You know, the injection rates are below projection. So the technology has flaws. And in the 50 years that it's, you know, been in some very minor use, it's it's not gotten any better. And so now... Um, so yeah, so I think something, you know, the fact that you're talking about 50 years and we haven't gotten costs down, we haven't really moved forward with this, you know, thinking of things, even just the, the common example to compare to of solar panels, say, we can watch just the precipitous fall in, in cost and price of solar panels that have made that so much more of an effective technology over that amount of time. I mean, that really does point us to CCS as probably not the magic bullet to climate change, right? Carbon capture and sequestration or carbon capture and storage seems like this silver bullet, right? Mm-hmm. That's a singular solution to carbon um, pollution that's a, a climate a greenhouse gas. Uh, and to point out that nothing is going to be a single solution mm-hmm. um, and that we have to look upstream um, to energy production. So when we're talking about solar you already mentioned you know like the technology has come so far but also the policy has to also lead Mm -hmm. so that in texas for instance where we sit alone on our grid independent in texas for the most part um when our energy mix when our energy it has to come from a mix like this is it's a nuanced solution um and it's a nuanced problem we talk we hear about you know it's really complex what's going underground but also what's driving that so we have to look upstream as you know consumers and as advocates um where the energy why that energy is getting produced how much what can be saved through efficiency so we're not talking mm-hmm. about at the end of a life cycle of overuse of, of unnecessary use of energy which is making somebody really rich Paige mentioned mm-hmm. could we have not produced that carbon in the first place mm-hmm. it's it's a nuanced problem and the the solutions also will be complex and as a as a advocacy organization I have to believe that we we as a people have the will and the the um and the audacity to to approach a solution that's nuanced and complex. No, and I so appreciate that because I think it's one of the things we consistently come back to is that these issues are so overlapping, so 
intricately connected and the idea that there is a, a quick fix to any of them something that you know i have to work through with my students constantly is this kind of like well what if we did this and it's like all right here are the 17 reasons that you know that gets complex if, if there was an easy solution to climate change we'd have solved it <laughs> right. it is the, the the vastness of this um and the vastness of these interconnected uh you know infrastructure systems and ways of being that absolutely i really appreciate you drawing our attention yeah and just thinking about safety rails right yeah. guide, guide rails that's what our work as advocates and on the policy piece and the regulation piece isn't to say that this this isn't going to happen or it can't happen we have to have energy i also like to plug in my coffee maker in the morning <laughs> um but to pro to provide for some guide rails that yeah. protect real people and real resources thank you that's for what that. we're here for and I think one of the one of the things I hear a lot from proponents of CCS and carbon capture is that we have to use every tool in the toolbox because this is complicated and complex and we don't know what's going to work. But we already know that carbon capture is expensive and it doesn't work and it's not the best use of our scarce resources in this moment, right? It might be something that we need for those last few hard to abate emissions in 30 years. Mm -hmm. But right now there are cheaper, more effective tools that we can use to reduce greater amounts of CO2, like nature-based solutions, like housing efficiency, you know, energy efficiency, and renewable energy generate all of the things that Becky just talked about. So let's not use broken tools, right? <laughs> let's not keep subsidizing, incentivizing the generation of CO2 pollution and um, make a good choice uh, about what we're doing in this moment, our, cl our climate moment right now. Yes, any technology that will further the life of burning fossil fuels is not our first tool. Mm, thank you. I think that's really important yeah. to, to get across. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think what both of you are really uh, clued into and really are here to talk about is some of these risks. And so in particular, maybe we'll go over to you, Becky, and why is this a water risk? You know, you're, you're thinking mm -hmm. about water in particular. How is this connected to, to water issues? Um, well, I'd like to start with a little background on some of our federal regulations around water and how they do, in fact, connect into this injection issue. So, of course, there's the 1972 Clean Water Act, which was the first overarching federal regulation to protect water quality, period. Um, and then closely on the heels, the 1974 Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, the organization I work for, as I mentioned, Clean Water Action, started to help pass those uh, original pieces of uh, federal legislation. Um, and the Safe Drinking Water Act authorizes EPA to regulate underground injection control program. So that's exactly what we're talking about. Anything that's going to get injected underground that might affect a current or potential future drinking water source mm. is now, you know, post-1974 and um, the underground, underground Injection Control Program, so it's the UIC, I'll try to keep saying it. Um, this, is, this is about water, this is the EPA, and this is where we intersect with anybody who's trying to put do any of that in underground injection. Um, and so again, how does this connect to water? 44% um, of Americans rely on groundwater as the supply for their drinking water. Um, here in Houston, our main Houston system that serves about 2.2 million people uh, 
comes uh, about 13% of that water is taken from groundwater sources. So think pumping wells, aquifers, uh, the rest of the, the percentage, the mix of water um, is from surface water resources, lakes, rivers, streams, uh, but nationwide, that's a lot higher. It's at up to 44%. And then in most of suburban Houston water systems, those are almost 100% groundwater. Mm -hmm. So that's where if something comes in contact with your groundwater, whether you know it's a contaminant or maybe you don't, that's where the threat is to drinking water. And so in thinking about this drinking water, I'm wondering where are we worried about this you know, stored carbon reaching that groundwater? Is it in these pipelines that you mentioned and leakages there? Is there somewhere else that we're really concerned about? Well, yes, and um, so there are a lot of like, what's the physical risk, right, threat of something getting injected underground, it's gas, it's partially liquid, it's under high, high pressure. Um, there are lots of accidents that can happen there. Uh, sometimes oil and gas industry has a, a wastewater of their own, sometimes we call that produced water, and there are leaks. Um, sometimes it flows over ground and sinks into groundwater resources, uh, but also there's a lot going on underground. And when you're injecting under high pressure, anything, CO2 and the mix that may be used for like fracking or what Paige mentioned, the uh, um, enhanced oil recovery, that's high pressure. So any natural fissures, changes in the, in the, in the makeup of what's underground, uh, there's room for any of that to leak and push out towards other wells, towards other pipelines. Think about other infrastructure. We're only talking about water or an oil and gas well here. There's lots of other things that humans have put underground too uh, that create fissures where this um, high pressure or pollutants can go and push uh, pollutants into groundwater. Well, and you're saying, you know, high pressure to, to push this underground. How far underground are we talking? Where are we actually trying to, Paige, you had mentioned some, you know, geological features we might be trying to put carbon into. Can you say more about yeah. where are these? How deep in the ground are they? What, what are we actually talking about when we say putting this carbon underground? Yeah, so there's a couple of different types of um, injection wells. Becky mentioned the underground injection control program of the Environmental Protection Agency. And right now, carbon dioxide is injected under the class two UIC program, the class two well. Um, and those are pretty shallow. Like those are supposedly, they're just called like wastewater disposal or enhanced oil recovery wells. And so they inject things like for EOR or to dispose of produced water, you know, wastewater from oil and gas operations. Um, or like CO2 sometimes can be used for EOR or it could just be like stored or disposed. Mm -hmm. So all of those are pretty shallow wells. They're pretty close to the surface. And we're seeing a lot of problems with the class two program, like induced seismicity, man-made earthquakes mm. because of overpressurization of the subsurface and injecting too much too fast. And, um, it's causing blowouts and, um, water contamination, groundwater contamination. Um, so those are kind of more shallow. And so then there's a second class of carbon injection well that's coming online or that's kind of already online called class six well, which is only for long-term geologic storage of carbon dioxide. Hmm. And so those are like two miles. Those are over a mile underground and they're much deeper and they're supposed to be like much more secure and that's the new sort of like permit that's coming out from the epa and the epa is granting authority to states to start 
given out those permits. And everyone, oil and gas companies who are working in carbon management in the state of Texas are excited about the prospect of storing carbon in a class six well because there are greater financial incentives from the federal government mm. to do so. Yes, Becky. Yeah, I'd like to back up just a second and and um, catch the catch up with the fact that oil and gas uh, operations that inject into um, in, into the ground are currently exemptions to the underground injection control program. Oh. So they have either sought, they've sought and been granted ex exemptions. So this is, there's a loophole in mm -hmm. the Safe Drinking Water Act that provided for prevention of underground injection. Um, and, and it was in, unless it will interfere with oil and gas production. Mm -hmm. So I just want to demonstrate that, that in Texas, we have over 54,000 of these class two permitted injection wells, mm -hmm. which represent, each one represents an exemption to an intended federal protection. Um, and we should also point out that um, many, if not most states have control of that program from EPA have been granted, you know, from federal moved into the states mm -hmm. to do the, the actual regulation and hands-on enhancement, or excuse me, enforcement and um, permitting. Texas is one of those states that has control. And you heard Paige mentioned the, the RRC, the Railroad Commission. So, we're over 54,000 and that was that's 2016 data so i'm sure we're ahead of that now mm -hmm. um and those are the class 2 injection wells that exist you know before today in texas in texas alone and so these you know I, i'm curious then are what are the standards you know if, they, if they're in a loophole space what are the standards around them what is the kind of government regulation or check especially for talking about you know these different kinds of wells that might be miles underground um how are we maintaining and managing and making sure, no, this is not actually, you know, getting into our water supply or affecting other infrastructure, as you've mentioned? I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Um, our Clean Water Action recommends after a decade or more of, of research and, um, you know, looking into multiple states, not just Texas, um, that we need an update of the regulation for class two injection wells. Um, mm -hmm. And then that's at the federal level and then has to come down to Texas where the, you know, the rubber meets the road on who's permitting and regulating and enforcing safety measures for injection wells. And then um, we would call to for improving the oversight of, of the state programs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, I think that's where advocacy organizations like ours come in, right? Because um, I've we've actually been speaking with um, the EPA, you know, Region Six, the 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 region that oversees, you know, Houston and uh, Texas, and all. we've been working with um, Region Six to share some of our concerns around the injection control programs, um, particularly around um, underground source of drinking water contamination in the Permian Basin, mm. where, you know, Midland currently has unsafe levels of arsenic in their drinking water again, right? Well, I'm curious, then, because that's what, that was what I wanted to get to next, is are we seeing examples of this material, these wells, having negative consequences on communities? And if so, yes, okay, arsenic in drinking water, 
that I understand yeah. that's immediate. Um, are there other examples that we can think of or? Yeah, well, and I think um, to the question earlier of like, how does this impact water? There's mm. underground water and then there's like groundwater on top of groundwater. Mm. And so like, if there's a well that blows out that because of this increased pressure, we are seeing earthquakes or sinkholes open up or geysers pop out of undocumented wells. There was one in Crane County that just got plugged a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week ago that had been spewing since the beginning of December. And it's, you know, it was the brine water that was so salty, it killed 30 acres of vegetation. Mm. You know, it was spewing for over six weeks. And so this is the type of stuff that's underground that's gonna come up and get into our waterways and streams, the cattle and birds are gonna, you know, drink and die. Like there's like Beamer, right? The Dead Sea of West Texas that kills for those, birds that fly. For those who don't remember, we we did talk a little about this in an earlier episode of Page, but can you can you walk us through what Lake Beamer is? Because I, I don't know that everyone's gonna be immediately familiar with it. Yeah, Lake Beamer is a colloquial name for a sixty acre saltwater lake um that was formed from an orphaned well um that's been spewing for over 20 years and it's the water's like super super salty it it belches uh, there's a texas monthly article about it that has a very beautiful description it says it belches hydrogen sulfide gas and kills the occasional waterfowl um it's deadly if you want to go there if, uh to take samples testing or do reports i know pe reporters who have gone i think amanda mm -hmm. um amanda drain who was who's on the program last time with Paige, and when we, we chatted about this i would encourage listeners to go back and listen, uh, to, yeah, listen to that episode um but yeah you have to wear hazmat and pr protective equipment to, to approach it so this is a this is a obviously an a hazard um of sort of like oil and gas drilling operations but it hasn't been plugged because the Railroad Commission of Texas, the state's oil and gas agency, says that it doesn't have authority over this well because it's it was transferred, it was permitted as an oil and gas well when it was drilled, but they didn't find any oil and gas, so they transferred it. Now it's under the jurisdiction of the TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, as a water well. And clearly it's spewing like radioactive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> deadly gases from you know oil and gas drilling operations but the tcq is like this in a water well we can't fix it and a railroad commission's like we can't fix it so that's uh that's what i like to call my regulatory hot potato on lake beamer well and i guess that prompts who is regulating these new carbon storage areas and, and are we going to have similar issues of uh, the government agencies not wanting to take you know charge of these yeah right now um Currently, EPA is okay. in, for Texas is the regulator of Class Six wells. These are the wells that uh, were, are intended for use for long-term storage or permanent storage. Um, we've seen uh, when our neighboring state in Louisiana uh, recently made a successful bid to have the state's agencies take over primacy, which is the ability to give permits and do the regulation from the federal government to the state of Louisiana's state agencies. Um, and I think Paige may speak to some some upcoming activity we see heading here for Texas on class six well regulation. Yeah, the uh, the Railroad Commission has their application into the EPA to obtain primacy over class six injection wells. It's not, um, you know, been approved yet. It's still in the review process. 
Um, so currently the EPA still has authority over permitting class six wells in Texas, and they're doing so. There are several permit applications already in the hopper, so to speak, and the first open comment period for the first one is going to be in mid-July, or it's projected to be in mid-July up in um, Ector County, where Oxy's doing their, uh, you know, carbon capture projects. Um, if if the uh, Railroad Commission were to obtain primacy, what does that actually mean in principle? What do we expect would start to happen? Are there any examples from what's happening in Louisiana when the EPA is no longer principally responsible for these? Well, I think our biggest concern is that um, the Railroad Commission of Texas does not have a very strong history of enforcement. Mm. And, um, you know, they they really haven't done a very good job of protecting groundwater already. The programs under their current, you know, purview are failing. And um, we, you know, we expect that if they get we expect that if they get primacy, you know, to begin granting class six permits, they will start handing them out. I don't want to say like candy, but you know, like they're, you know, it will, the permitting process will, will speed up and we will see more permits happening faster and, uh, you know, uh, not, maybe not, um, not managed as well, right under their purview. So I'm, I'm curious about, you know, I, especially for a Houston listenership or kind of greater Houston area, you know, I think when we think of orphan wells, we've talked about in the past, and we think of these different places, one, there are a surprising number that are really around the Houston area. But in thinking of how this will affect groundwater, these groundwater basins are, are massive and, and supply vast different regions with water and connect through through multiple waterways. So if there were to be these kind of complications from some of this underground storage, what would that mean for Houston water? What would it mean for different, you know, Texas City water, you know, supplies? I'm curious about, you know, this, I think right now it can sometimes for, for urbanites feel a little far away, right? That this feels like a problem that's off where we're, where we're drilling and where there are wells. And I'm, I'm, I, I see from shaking heads right now that there's, you know, that this is something that will be a local issue. So I'm wondering if you can speak more to that. Sure. Um, threats to our water resources in Texas have existed plenty, you know, long before the, the proliferation of these injection wells. Um, we There are parts of our state that have way too much water at different parts mm. of the year. We deal with flooding. We deal with storms and sewage overflows. There are parts of our state that have always been scare water scarce, mm-hmm. um, and the competition for the use of any of that water in technologies that are going to um, be used to do things like cool CO two capture to its temperature so that it can be stored and and um, and transported, as Paige mentioned. Those are going to come. Those are competing water uses. Mm-hmm. So anywhere that we've already got a, a, a lack of water, um, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more expensive. And so that's not even talking about like the chemical intrusion, right? That's that's just the threats and the challenges with the water that we have in the industry that needs it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the the actual physical infiltration you're talking about. Um, I can't speak to you know which aquifer. Uh, it's is nearest which pipeline at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I'll say that it's it's really interesting for, as you mentioned, like the sort of urban core of Houston. Um, I would encourage folks to go um, look where your drinking water comes from. And it's easier than you may think. I'm happy to 
spell that out. Please do. Um, for folks who are curious, listeners who are curious about where your drinking water comes from and what potential threats are, um, I suggest just do a general internet search for drinking water quality report and the name of your town or city. Mm. Um, what's going to pop up are some offerings. Um, you might see the acronym called CCR. It's a consumer confidence report. Mm. And if you're um, every drinking water cust utility customer, which often in the city is is actually landlords and not necessarily the folks who are consuming it, get one in the mail or at least in their electronic bill every year. And it reports on here's the water quality here, the federal regulations that we have to follow here, are what we found in the samples. But the first thing it says is what I always look for when I'm traveling. Where does the water come from? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the city of Houston, as I mentioned, you'll see there are I think it's six. Uh, six surface water bodies and 13, um, 13 wells. And that's just Houston. And then again, in suburban Houston, it's 100% well water. And it will tell you the name of the aquifers it comes from. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the Chico aquifer is is near Houston. So it's not that far out. Yeah, This water is is flowing and connected. It, it's connected to all of, all of the gas, all of it, and the land, and the seismic activity, and potential pipelines. Where we where are we gonna build this? Yeah, in addition to you know the the permit applications in the Permian Basin, there's some in, along the Gulf Coast as well, right? You know we're seeing it in Chambers County where they want to inject. We're seeing it in the near offshore. We're seeing it along the coast, um, down in Kingsville and and that sort of thing. But even even outside of groundwater contamination, there are other risks associated with carbon capture, transport use and storage projects that are going to heavily impact Houstonians, you know, particularly being in the proximity to pipelines, to carbon mm -hmm. transport pipelines. Uh, if you live anywhere near the ship channel, you know, uh, the hydrogen projects that are coming that are related to carbon capture. Having how, that, how are those related? Um, so there are a couple different ways to produce hydrogen. Um, the favorite in Texas being um, blue hydrogen, what they call, which is the reformation of methane. It's called steam methane reformation, where you mix uh, natural gas and water and steam, and you get the output of hydrogen and CO2. And so now you have sort of like a clean burning fuel in hydrogen, but this waste product CO2 that needs to be now stored underground or whatever with CCS. Um, so that's like the hydrogen project that's coming to Houston, the high velocity hub, which was recently awarded $1.2 billion from the Department of Energy mm. is planning to have 80% of its production be blue hydrogen from natural gas. And so we're going to see an increase in, you know, natural gas into that area to the ship channel. Um, we're going to see more water consumption through steam methane reformation. We're going to see um, more volatility in, you know, having those volumes of hydrogen stored and transported around the ship channel with near lots of other chemicals and things. And so there are concerns around, you know, what is the increased risk to ship channel communities of having, you know, these hydrogen facilities in expansion. What is the risk to coastal communities of having new CO2 pipeline infrastructure when we already know that this part of the country has the most hazardous pipeline incidents because we have the most shifting land. And so you put, you know, 
hard pipelines into the soft ground and you're going to see problems. So we're going to see pipeline ruptures, right? And CO2 is an asphyxiant. It's deadly. Uh, it's going to go to the low-lying areas and um, it's going to, you know, it can it can suffocate. Um, it can cause long-term neurological damage. It makes your car so you can't run if you have a combustion engine. So even emergency vehicles can't, can't get to folks that are in a CO2 plume. Um, so there are a lot of problems, even outside of groundwater contamination, um, that we're concerned about with carbon capture and storage projects. I, I just want to note that I, I see our, our, our audio engineer, Rico, is, has pulled up the, uh, the drinking water report for, for Houston and just some top line things popping up are already arsenic and lead, yeah. um, amongst other things that I'm sure if we continued scrolling, you know, water loss, a uh, variety of issues here. Um, so, yes, please do do take Becky up on that suggestion and, and go look at actually what's in your water. Uh, we're, we're starting to move towards the end of things. So I just want to to ask, you know, the I think the, the important question here of what should we be doing? What are next steps? What should we be uh, calling for from, you know, our legislatures? But also, uh, you know, you, you laid out the risks here that I think are, are, are clear and, and, and concerning. But how how can we make sure that some of this is either reduced or what should actions should we be taking to try to reduce some of that risk? I'll start. <clears throat> I'll start. Um, you'll see groups like ours, Clean Water Action, um, asking EPA leadership to not grant primacy to the state of Texas uh, Railroad Commission, Texas Railroad Commission, um, to not take control of the upcoming Class 6 injection well program. We will say, here are clear examples of um, of poor management in the past of uh, programs they've had control of, and we don't want we we can't see that happen again. We want mm -hmm. the federal government to maintain control of the Class Six Underground Injection Control Program. Yeah, and that's super important. I think another thing that we're working on, um, you know, we have a petition right now out to uh, prevent the Railroad Commission from getting primacy over Class Six wells. Um, you can find that on, I think, the Commission Shift website. It's like bit.ly slash no TX primacy. Um, but we're also, you know, asking for reform of the Class 2 program, mm -hmm. right? Because that's highly problematic. And then there's also other protections that you can ask for um, if and when these projects continue to go forward. Because sometimes, you know, it feels like the wheels are already in motion. There's a lot of energy, a lot of people who are going to get really rich on this and that are really excited about moving it forward. So, you know, consider that we're fighting that amount of momentum, right? Um, it may be impossible to stop all of these projects. I don't know. That's what we're working on in building this coalition and trying to talk about this. But at the very least, there are sensible policies that can be put in place to protect people, communities, et cetera. And, um, you know, the Department of Energy put out a call last summer for comments on a responsible carbon management plan. And um, I didn't want to respond to them because I was like, this is silly. There's no such <laughs> thing as responsible carbon management. But I... Um, 
I felt that they needed to hear because there are a lot of things. So anyway, I came up with this 15 point plan, which is, which is only 15. I tried to limit it, you know, only 15. <laughs> there are even more things. That it was an impressive, co impressive comment response. <laughs> yeah, I did. I came back with my 15 point plan. I was like, well, first of all, we shouldn't be using it for EOR. You know, we need to have co-benefits for other air pollutant removal. We need to ensure that aging infrastructure is not repurposed for new projects, which mm -hmm. will, you know, increase the likelihood of um, catastrophe. We need to ensure that there are adequate worker protections for folks who are going to work in and on these projects. We need to ensure, you know, environmental justice, free prior and informed consent, you know, the community benefits agreements don't um, allow for more pollution in already overburdened communities. Like there are things, provisions, policy suggestions that could be written into these processes. And so as the rules are coming up in the next few years, right, in the 2025 state legislative session, they're going to be passing bills on, you know, carbon dioxide rules and CCS storage. And so, you know, being involved in that, you know, talking to your representative, hopefully by then we'll have even more opportunities for folks to get engaged and um, become part of this movement. Because I'm really concerned as uh, as a Gulf Coast resident, as a lifelong Texan, you know, about the prospect of um, what this could do um, to our communities. Paige Powell, Becky Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Becky Smith and her work at Clean Water Action, visit cleanwater.org. And to learn more about Paige Powell's work with Commission Shift, go to commissionshift.org. I want to pause briefly to remind listeners that KPFT Houston is currently in our February fund drive. Call 713-526-KPFT to learn about all the unique pledge drive offerings going on this month. We're delighted to bring you important conversations about environmental and climate issues here in Houston and beyond on Gulf Streams and can only do so with your support. So please call 713-526-KPFT, make a one-time or sustainer donation, mention Gulf Streams, and help us to keep ad-free public radio on the air here in Houston. We'll go now to our researcher, Jaden, who's been working on a series of stories around water conservation. And this is the latest in that series, and it focuses specifically on droughts in Texas. Hey y'all, I hope you're doing well. Today we're going to be shifting gears to focus a little bit about the importance of droughts that are occurring in Texas. This is far from a new phenomenon, but nonetheless, it's vitally important to discuss, especially during a time when climate change is so prevalent. A few things we're going to talk about today are what is actually causing these droughts in Texas. We'll also take a step back and look at the historical perspective of droughts covering events in the 1930s and 50s, and we'll shift again and learn a little bit about the economic and societal implications of droughts in Texas. And lastly, we'll wrap up with the environmental challenges coupled with ways we can attempt to mitigate further damages from occurring. So why exactly do we get plagued with droughts in Texas? Is there a true culprit? Well, yes and no. There's not one specific event or action that causes Texas to spiral into a drought. That being said, various climate factors and human activity are two of the main reasons why we face such detrimental droughts. Texas is influenced by a variety of weather patterns, including semi-arid climate of its western region and the humid subtropical climate of its eastern region. Additionally, Texas is known for its high temperatures, especially during the summer months. 
These high temperatures can enhance evaporation rates, leading to an increased water loss from its soils and the surface of bodies of water. Having prolonged periods of heat exacerbates drought conditions by drying up vegetation and soil. An article in 2023 by the Texas Tribune stated that farmers can irrigate their crops during dry periods, but this summer's heat and drought has made it difficult for irrigation systems to keep up. Through this, we can see that these increasing temperatures are making an already dry, prone climate more susceptible to disasters. It's also important to note that Texas has diverse topography, ranging from coastal plains to rugged mountains and nearly everything in between. This leaves certain areas, such as plains and plateaus, far more prone to droughts due to limited moisture retention and runoff. Factors such as the Gulf of Mexico also play crucial roles in droughts that impact Texas. For example, the Gulf is a breeding ground for hurricanes and tropical storms, especially during the Atlantic hurricane season, which typically runs from June to November. While oftentimes these storms cause more damage due to flooding and infrastructure issues, they also are a factor in impacting the climate dynamic, subsequently impacting the droughts throughout Texas. Human activity is another factor that leads to droughts. According to the International Civil Defense Organization, human activity can directly trigger exacerbating factors such as overfarming, excessive irrigation, deforestation, and erosion, which adversely impact the ability of land to capture and hold water. In arid climates, the main source of erosion is wind. The wind can cause small particles to be lifted and therefore move to another region, which is known as deflation. Suspended particles within the wind may impact soil objects, causing erosion by abrasion. Wind erosion generally occurs in areas with little or no vegetation, often in areas where there's insufficient rainfall to support vegetation. So to further expand on this, it is understood that factors such as overfarming and overgrazing can lead to soil being compacted and unable to hold water. What this means is soil becomes drier and ultimately more vulnerable to erosion and subsequently droughts. Taking a step back, let's look at droughts from a historical perspective. In the 1930s, the U.S. experienced some of the worst dust storms and droughts that the U.S. has ever seen. The Dust Bowl was a severe drought and, given the name, Dust Storms too were involved. These environmental disasters affected the southern plains of the United States, including the Panhandle region of Texas. The combination of prolonged droughts, poor land management practices, and high wind led to massive dust storms that devastated agricultural lands and caused significant economic and environmental impacts. In Texas alone, the Dust Bowl contributed to crop failure, soil erosion, and widespread economic hardships for farmers and ranchers alike. Unfortunately, the last of the hardships wouldn't be left in the 30s. During the 1950s, another series of droughts occurred in Texas. During this time, the droughts lasted from approximately 1949 to 1957, and at the time, the state of Texas saw major impacts on agriculture, water resources, and communities. In addition, crop failures, livestock losses, and water shortages were widespread, leading to more economic hardships and social disruptions. For Texans, the drought of the 1950s remains a benchmark for extreme drought conditions and serves as a reminder of the vulnerability of the region to prolonged dry spells. While Texas has a relatively long history of droughts and natural disasters at large, it must be remembered that these events are not restricted to periods long ago. In fact, in 2006 and 2011, 
two major droughts occurred, which resulted in the loss of hundreds of lives, billions of dollars of agricultural losses due to crop failures, and thousands of square miles of land lost to wildfires, according to Science Direct. Droughts in Texas, as well as globally, can contribute to the reduction of reservoir levels. Changes in events such as precipitation patterns, increased evaporation rates due to higher temperatures, and increased water demand can lead to the reduced water levels in reservoirs. This can impact our water supply for drinking, agriculture, hydropower generation, and ecosystem health, among others. Further, these droughts can also have lasting consequences on wildlife. When environmental changes occur, such as habitat loss, fragmentation, droughts, and degradation, they can have adverse effects on wildlife populations. This can lead to loss of biodiversity, changes in species distribution, and increased risk of extinction of vulnerable species. Unsurprisingly, droughts can impact all aspects of life, including social and economic facets. Let's start with the decreased water availability. Droughts can lead to decreased precipitation, reduced river flows, and depleting groundwater levels, which ultimately limit the water available for urban areas. Due to this, water scarcity issues may arise, such as increased competition for water resources and the need for stricter water use regulations. Other issues that arise are related to water infrastructure. When droughts occur, water treatment plants may not be able to keep up with the high demand for clean water, which could potentially lead to disruptions in water supply. Droughts don't only impact urban water supply systems. In fact, crop failures and reduction yields can become quite prominent during such trying times. This can cause soil moisture deficits, reduction in irrigation water availability, and heat stress on crops, which can lead to crop failures and reduction in agricultural productivity, which subsequently results in significant economic losses for farmers and rural communities that rely on agriculture for income and overall their livelihoods. This is not a far-removed issue that will only impact certain people hours away, states away, or even countries away. This will affect and impact people everywhere, as it is likely that increased production costs will incur, which will drive up how much we have to spend at the grocery store. As during droughts, it's not uncommon for farmers to incur higher costs for irrigation, water pumping, and supplemental feeds for livestock. Droughts can also have major effects on public health. For instance, reduced access to clean and available drinking water can cause an increased risk of waterborne diseases and health problems for urban and rural populations. Limited access to clean water can also impact hygiene practices and sanitation, exacerbating health risks on a national and potentially even global scale. Additionally, vulnerable populations such as low-income communities and marginalized groups may bear the brunt of these drought impacts, experiencing heightened food insecurity and clean water access. Given all this information, it's clear that droughts have the potential to cause catastrophic issues here in Texas, but globally as well. While there may not be an immediate solution that fixes everything in one day, here are some things we can do to ensure we're doing our part to lessen the burden that droughts have on our community. According to Texas Parks and Wildlife, here are a few precautionary measures you can take now. Start by fixing any leaking faucets. It seems easy enough and it'll cut your water bill. Hopefully, that's an incentive for all of you. And this may seem small, leaking faucets can actually waste up to 3,000 gallons of water a year. Another thing for all of you who enjoy gardening and tending to your yard, keep in mind that most plants end up dying from being overwatered, not underwatered. So you can water your yard or garden more sparingly from now on. Hopefully this dive into droughts was informative, not only on the droughts itself and the aftermath, but also how we can start to make a change today. So with that, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. 
And now we'll go to our researcher, Sienna, who has a new segment called Environmental Mythbusting that she'll be bringing to us. Welcome to Environmental Mythbusting. Today, we're unraveling the misconceptions surrounding biodegradable and compostable plastics. Are these plastics truly the eco-friendly solution they're marketed to be? Let's find out. Biodegradable and compostable plastics are often praised as sustainable alternatives derived from plant materials or other biological sources. But here's the catch. Just because something has bio in its name doesn't automatically make it environmentally friendly. A study investigating the biodegradability of bioplastics versus petroleum-based plastics found that rather than degrading as expected, the bioplastic samples actually increased in weight, challenging the idea of their eco-friendliness. Bioplastics are hyped by industry marketers as the solution to plastic pollution, but the idea that bottles and packaging made of plant-based material can simply be discarded and then break down and disappear is false. And here's where it gets interesting. Products labeled as biodegradable or compostable might only break down under specific conditions, conditions you won't typically find in your average landfill. Take corn-based plastics, for example. While they're technically biodegradable, they can linger for centuries in landfills, just like their petroleum-based counterparts. According to research highlighted in Yale Environment 360, when bioplastics end up in landfills, which is often the case, Lacking the necessary oxygen to facilitate degradation, they can persist for centuries and emit methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Studies have shown that biodegradable plastics face significant challenges outside of controlled environments. They need very specific conditions, like those found in high-temperature industrial composting facilities, to break down efficiently. Industrial composting is necessary to heat the bioplastic to a high enough temperature that allows the microbes to break it down. Otherwise, the bioplastics won't degrade on their own in a meaningful time frame. In one 2019 study, researchers left compostable plastic bags buried in a soil or submerged in seawater for three years as a trial. At the end, some of the bags were intact enough to carry a full load of groceries still which means that without a dramatically ramped up global system of collecting and processing biodegradable packaging, compostable is not much better than plastic for the environment. So how come some of these bioplastics end up in landfills? In the US, only 27% of the population have access to food waste composting programs. In only 142 out of the 201 industrial composting facilities nationwide that process food waste will accept compostable packaging. This means that the country is producing far more biodegradable and compostable cups, plates, and utensils than it can actually process. For example, cities as big as Atlanta do not have a composting plant within an hour's drive. And the entire state of Alabama does not have a single place that can digest compostable plastic. And we know that this plastic issue is huge. A recent study in the journal Science estimated that approximately 11 million metric tons of plastic find their way into the oceans each year, with projections suggesting a tripling of plastic waste production by 2040 if current consumption trends continue. This highlights the urgent need for effective solutions to address plastic pollution. So if biodegradable plastics aren't the solution to our plastic pollution crisis, what alternatives do we have? Experts urge us to shift our focus to recycling, reducing, and reusing, the three R's that we've always heard of. 
but by reducing the amount of single-use packaging along with embracing a circular economy approach and investing in recycling infrastructure, we can finally make a real dent in our plastic waste problem. And it's crucial to question this hype surrounding biodegradable and compostable plastics and advocate for broader solutions. While they may seem like a step in the right direction, they're not a cure-all. Let's prioritize long-term solutions that address the systemic and root causes of plastic pollution. So thank you guys for tuning in to Environmental Mythbusting. Join us next time as we continue to explore environmental issues and uncover the truth behind the headlines. And Jaden also has a short piece on how to get involved around town this week in Houston. Hey y'all, I hope you're doing well. If you're looking for a meaningful way to get involved in the greater Houston area this upcoming week, I'd like to draw your attention to a wonderful volunteering opportunity with Houston Audubon. On Saturday, February 24th from 9 a.m. to noon, you're invited to join a group of volunteers at North Jetty in Port Bolivar for a rewarding cleanup event. Not only will you be actively contributing to the preservation of our precious coastal environment, but you'll also have a chance to take in the beautiful scenery around you. Volunteering here offers a hands-on approach to environmental stewardship, fostering lasting benefits for both our natural surroundings and our local communities. By taking part in this initiative, you're not just cleaning up debris. You're playing a crucial role in guiding our community towards a more sustainable future. Additionally, this event presents an excellent opportunity to expand your knowledge on coastal ecologies and conservation practices through staff and fellow volunteers' experiences. If you're eager to roll up your sleeves and get involved, simply visit HoustonAudubon.org, then you can navigate to the calendar, then you can locate February 24th, click on the date, follow the link, and you can sign up right there. I hope you have a great rest of your day and happy volunteering. Up next time on Gulf Streams, we have our second piece in our series on plastics. This time we're talking about PFAS, or forever chemicals, what they are, why they matter, and what can be done to reduce their harm on our environment and health. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. A quick reminder that you can catch up on Gulf Streams anytime through our podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Finally, I'd like to remind listeners that KPFT is in our February fund drive. To support more programming, please call 713-526-KPFT. Press 1 for donations and mention Gulf Streams when you pledge to help keep our work going. This work is only possible with your generous support, so please call in to 713-526-KPFT, extension 1, and make a pledge to keep us on the air and bringing you the most important stories about the environment and our changing climate here in Houston. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio, produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R &R show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here 
on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM.